You're listening to audio from the Town Center campus of CA Church, located in downtown Coquitlam. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. And find Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37. And today, at the end, I'm going to say the word of the Lord to us, and your response will be, thanks be to God. Oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord to us. Thanks, Sharon. Oh, good morning, Town Center. How are we this morning? Good. Well, it's good to be back with you. My name's Ryan, if we haven't met. Every year since the year 1973, the research company Gallup, who you may know of, has conducted a poll among Americans to measure their trust in 14 national institutions, including things like Congress, big businesses, the presidency, public schools, the medical system, the military, the church, and so forth. And what Gallup has found from their poll in 2022, the most recent one that they have data for, is that the average confidence across all of these institutions is down to an all-time low. I think we have a chart here. You can see the downward trend from more or less the beginning here in 1979. Very much uh, a decrease in the level of trust that Americans have placed across all of these institutions as a whole. Now, more than that as well, in 13 out of 14 of the categories, uh, there was an all-time low this last year. And so this includes all of the categories, including the church, which has dropped 6% from 37 to 31. The only institution that didn't drop was organized labor, which remained at a steady 28%. And what does this tell us? Over history, we're less trusting than we've ever been. Or maybe it's just the Americans, I don't know. But it's no secret that the erosion of trust in our society is widespread, uh, not just among major institutions, but among people as well. We don't know who to trust. The pervasive feeling is that everyone is just out to get us. We've seen story after story of people in positions of power, abusing their authority over the last few years. We've seen the Facebook Cam Cambridge uh, Analytica data scandal. Uh, some of us have probably been victims of fraud scams. Never feels good when that happens. And to top it all off, we live in a fog of disinformation and propaganda. Bit of history for you on propaganda. At the time of the Cold War, as part of the Russians' tactics, the KGB bombarded the world with lies, deception, and propaganda. They inserted spies into major media, entertainment, and journal outlets, and the term desinformatia, aka disinformation, was coined by the Russians themselves. Now, there's a man named Garry Kasparov who was a proponent for Russian democracy. And he set up the United Civil Front in 2005 in opposition to the Putin administration. 
and he was set to run for president in 2008, but eventually he withdrew to what he claims was official obstruction. So here's a man who knows the politics of Russia. He now lives in Croatia as an exile, and he says this. He says, the point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda. It is to exhaust your critical thinking, to annihilate truth. Isn't that scary? Propaganda makes us confused, and we're left not knowing what or who to believe. And we now live in a postmodern world where the word post-truth was the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016. Facts have become subordinated to subjective feelings and opinions. All of this has contributed to the sea of deception we swim in. So for good reason, we're hesitant to trust. And we know that others are, too. Now, perhaps this is one of the reasons we feel the need to bolster our words with an oath or by swearing. We feel the need to add a little extra sauce to our words to be trusted. We've all heard the words, I swear to God, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I swear on my life, or the one from childhood, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. How many of you guys said that? But according to Jesus, this is not the way of the kingdom. Instead, we are to be people of integrity, beatitude people of such character that we don't need to add authority or credibility to our word for others to trust us, but people take us at what we say. And this is the point that Jesus is getting at in his teaching today. Now, to provide some context to our passage today, we've finished the Beatitudes, and in this particular section on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been correcting his hearers' understanding of what righteousness actually looks like. He's been exposing the Pharisees' perverted interpretation of the Mosaic Law. So Jesus opens with his trademark line, you have heard that it was said, spells out the traditional understanding of the Pharisees on a topic before expanding on what true righteousness looks like. So for example, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and so forth. And Jesus uses this same formula, not only with anger, but also on the topics of lust and divorce, as we saw last week. And he does it again here in our text in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Here it is one more time. It says, again, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so the point that I want to make today, the, the call, the exhortation that I want to bring to you this morning, is we are called to be a people, a community of integrity in a culture of moral compromise, a community of honesty in a culture of deception. 
By way of expounding upon this text, we're going to look at three different groups of people or persons. The first, we're going to look at the Pharisees. Secondly, the enemy. And thirdly, the people of God. So let's get rolling with the Pharisees. When Jesus opens up saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He's actually not quoting one specific verse from the Old Testament, but a conglomeration of four texts from the Torah. And if you want to take notes, they are Exodus 20, verse 7, where the Ten Commandments are found, Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, and Deuteronomy 23, 21. And the thrust of these passages together is that if you make a vow, you must keep it. And if you don't, you're taking the Lord's name in vain and profaning it. Now, in our, in our passage in Matthew, Jesus is pushing back against the Pharisees' understanding of what profaning his name through an oath looked like. So what the Pharisees would do, you know, they were masters of uh, appearing righteous and then, you know, not really having the heart to back it up. What they did is they would come up with various rules for taking oaths so as to not technically take the Lord's name in vain. And one of them was that unless the Lord's name specifically was invoked in an oath, the oath wasn't binding. So they're always looking for the loopholes. They had the appearance of reverence and righteousness, but their words were empty. So what they would do to protect themselves from profaning God's name is they would invoke substitute words that, that were, you know, serious enough, right? So things like Jerusalem or heaven or earth. Um, and so by swearing by these things or these authorities other than God, they could have the appearance of making a solemn oath. People would, would have reason to believe them while they would also have the peace of mind that if they broke their oath, God would not dole out consequences because his name wasn't actually invoked. Ridiculous, right? Like they go around saying things like, I swear by heaven, I'll pay you back in a week. And then once day eight rolls around, they'd be all like, joke's on you, buddy. Like I didn't swear on the Lord's name. And it's like, wow, they just got out of that oath. Um, and they had no remorse because they weren't taking the Lord's name in vain. They were masters at posturing, and using the right language to preserve an image of holiness, but their hearts were far from God. I was reading this uh, scripture earlier in the week, and it just totally fits. Isaiah 29, uh, verse 13a. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. This, this is what Jesus is exposing in the Sermon on the Mount with the Pharisees' interpretation of all these different topics. And this is just the latest in this list. So the irony, <laughs> the irony that Jesus is pointing out is that even when people were swearing by things like heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or their own head, all of those things belong to God anyways. Heaven is the throne of God. Earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is the city of the king. And your head is God's creation. As David says in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In other words, everything is under God's jurisdiction and domain. And Jesus is essentially saying to the Pharisees that you're still making an appeal to God as witness when you swear by heaven or earth or Jerusalem because he is omnipresent and king over all. Therefore, your oath is binding. And therefore, when you fail to keep your oath, 
you're a liar, and you're taking God's name in vain. How's that? (laughs) Can you imagine being a Pharisee and realizing all of these oaths that you had made are now stacked against you because you were actually taking the Lord's name in vain, and you didn't wiggle your way out of them? Now, to cut through the manipulation and the deceit, Jesus instructs us, do not take an oath. Now, the question we need to ask is, is Jesus saying we should never take an oath? For instance, in court or mortgage papers or marriage vows. After all, the text says, do not take an oath at all. Well, there are certain... um, Certain groups of of Christians that do believe this, certain Anabaptist circles, um, Amish as well, I believe. And I would argue that if we look at the larger canon of Scripture, I would argue no. And here's why. First, we see multiple instances where the Apostle Paul would call God as his witness. Here's one example from 2 Corinthians where Paul gives his reason for not traveling to Corinth. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. We even see Paul take a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts, a vow not to shave his head, uh, drink alcohol, or touch a dead body. Secondly, we even see Jesus responded to the high priest when he was put under an oath at his trial. In Matthew 26, 63, the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't remain silent. He doesn't condemn this this oath, this swearing by God's name. He says, you have said so. And thirdly, we see that God himself takes oaths, right? He makes covenants, lasting covenants with Abraham and with David. So what type of oath or swearing is Jesus condemning then? The type of oaths that the Pharisees were guilty of, adding external authority to their words to gain the trust of others while also having an out if they couldn't keep their word. Jesus is saying that honest people do not need to resort to oaths. You shouldn't need to borrow the authority or the credibility of something else to have the trust of others. We should be people of such character that oaths become unnecessary for people to believe our word. The weight of your words should be in your character and not in your run-on sentences. So this really raises the question, why do we feel the need to scale our words up anyways? Well, Jesus' last line in this text is very telling. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, or other translations like was on the screen say the evil one or the enemy. Oaths exist because of evil. Oaths have to do with making agreements because the world isn't marked by trust and integrity, but deception, greed, power, selfishness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a a pastor during World War II, uh, says it this way. He says, the very existence of oaths is a proof that there are such things as lies. If lying were unknown, there would be no need for oaths. Or how about this great line from John Stott? He's a scholar. Swearing is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. How honest is that, eh? Strikes a chord, right? Pathetic confession. So, just remember that next time you try to swear an oath, right? You're being pathetic. Pathetic confession of your own dishonesty. (laughs) It really holds up a mirror, doesn't it? 
So if you're seeking to borrow credibility to underline your word, it's likely because you've given people reason to believe that you can't be trusted in the past. There's something in doubt about your character, your integrity. If you find yourself having to convince people that you can be trusted, or you're reaching to borrow authority from a third party, it's time to take a look in the mirror. Now, what do I mean? Well, in his book, The Speed of Trust, Stephen Covey takes a look at what the key ingredients are to creating a culture of trust in relationships and how to get there. And he says there are many different things that make trust deposits in relationships and many things that uh, lead to trust withdrawals in relationships. And you know, you know what the number one thing is that he discovered builds trust in any relationship? It's keeping commitments. And the opposite is true. The quickest way to harm trust is to break commitments. People take notice when we can't keep commitments and it breaks trust. And it goes deeper still. People take notice when you can't keep the commitments you even make to yourself. It's all about being a person of your word. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Now, let me give you a, kind of a humorous example, but it's to make a point. How many of us set our alarm clock and fully intend to get up at a certain time? Only to hit snooze several times the next morning. Anyone like willing to put their hand up? Remember, honesty, right? Um, <laughs> innocent enough, right? But what happens when you do this? I'd bet a nickel you do it again the next day or a few days later and eventually it becomes a pattern and slowly you learn not to trust yourself. You don't follow through on what you intend to do. Now here's Stephen Covey again with a quote uh, based on this kind of behavior. He says, what's the net result of repeated failure to make and keep commitments to ourselves? It hacks away at our self-confidence not only do we lose trust in our ability to make and keep commitments, we fail to project the personal strength of character that inspires trust. Dang, like that's, that's a zinger, hey? Like maybe there's some light bulbs like going on right now. It's all making sense. But we have to be honest with ourselves first. Are we congruent people? Are we congruent people? Do our actions match our words? So here's a fun or maybe not so fun experiment if you're a fellow alarm clock snoozer. Maybe ask your spouse or someone close to you if it affects their trust or their respect in you even just in the slightest and be willing to listen. Give them permission to speak honestly. Now the point that I'm trying to make here isn't to encourage you to wake up earlier but to mean what you say and do what you intend. So if you like hitting snooze, like that's okay. Like, Praise God for the snooze button, honestly. But determine how many times you're going to hit snooze the night before and stick to that number. Or if you truly want to get up when that alarm goes off the first time, get out of bed. The goal is congruency, integrity, remaining true to your word. Now, alarm clocks are one thing, but our word goes a lot deeper than this, doesn't it? For instance, do you tell people that you totally want to hang out and never follow up. I think that's like something that's just like, I don't know, it's like a stronghold in our culture or something. Just like, I don't know how many people say this. And then we never follow up. It's just sort of like accepted. But will we be people over a word? 
Do you make arrangements with people and back out if something better comes along? Do you submit assignments and projects late? Do you show up to meetings late consistently? Do you follow through when you say you'll pray for someone? That, that one really hits, eh? Do you do the tasks that your, your spouse asks you to do or your parents? This isn't meant to lay on the shame, but to encourage you to only commit to that which you know you can back up with action. Otherwise, we're lying to ourselves, we're lying to others, we're failing to project this, this, this confidence that we can follow through on what we say we will do. It's a lot better to under-promise and over-deliver than it is to over-promise and under-deliver. I think I said that right. Once you begin trusting yourself and keeping the commitments you make to yourself, others begin to see that you're trustworthy, that you're reliable, that you can be depended on. And Jesus says this, let what you say be simply yes or no. We shouldn't have to add to that. Jesus' own brother, he later says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So does your yes mean yes? Or does it mean maybe? <laughs> does it actually mean no? Does your no mean yes? Does it mean perhaps? Your yes obligates you and your no obligates you. This is what Jesus is saying. Now in the negative, Jesus is saying, don't take oaths. They should be unnecessary for you. But in the positive, Jesus is saying, be people of honesty and integrity. Let your actions match your words. Now, here's the scary thing. And this is where we finally get to actually talking about like the enemy here. When we resort to deception, we're playing in the enemy's playground. He is the master of deception. Started in the Garden of Eden when he told Eve a lie. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He spun a lie, and Eve took the bait. The enemy tells us lies and tempts us to tell lies. And when we deceive others, we're playing by the devil's playbook. And check out these harsh words that Jesus had for none other than the Pharisees again in John chapter 8. He says, you are of your father, the devil. They were claiming to be um, sons of Abraham, which, you know, through lineage they are. He's saying, you're actually, you're, you're, you, are, <laughs> you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus is calling the Pharisees the offspring of Satan. Why? Because they lived hypocritically. They lived a lie, presenting an image of righteousness while failing to have pure hearts. They imitated the enemy whose character is to lie. In his most recent book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer, highly recommend the book, he says this. He says, the devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. His primary way of sabotaging your life and the world isn't through scare tactics and raw power, but through manipulation using ideas. Now, if you didn't know it, you're in the middle of a war, a spiritual war for your allegiance. And the devil's mission is to get you to believe that 
God doesn't have your best interests at heart or to tempt you to believe that you are the sum of your mistakes or your past or that you're inadequate, you're not smart enough, you're not good-looking enough, you're not fill-in-the-blank enough, you're unlovable, you're damaged goods beyond repair. So as the people of God, we do not wield the weapons of darkness, such as dishonesty and deceit. Deception and dishonesty have no place in the life of a believer. As the people of God, we stand against the tactics of the enemy. We follow the one who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. We follow the good shepherd who provides for us, protects us, guides us, cares for us. In a world where we don't know who or what to trust, Jesus can be trusted. I don't know what you bring into this morning, but maybe for some of you, you've been in a season of distrust in God, where there's been circumstances that have happened in your life. There's been pain points. There's been relationships that you've been hurt by. Maybe there's a bomb that just went off in your family, in your personal life, and you wonder, can God be trusted? I mean, look, look, look at our culture, how distrusting we are. Can we actually trust God? How do we know we can trust him? Well, unlike those who use their power for their own gain, Jesus disadvantaged himself for us. He died that we might have life eternal. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep who were undeserving. He put aside his own reputation, his divine privileges, and indeed his own body in sacrificial love for us. And so we look to the good shepherd who keeps his promises and who cannot deny himself. Even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful to the covenants and the promises he has made. We worship the father of lights, according to James 1.17, not the father of lies. So one of the ways that we engage in spiritual warfare is to fight lies with truth. We are called to be a people of integrity in a culture of moral compromise, a people of honesty in a culture of deception. Now, you know how much power that has for a community to be committed to integrity and to honesty? A lot. Now, are you ready for me to drop the quote of the year on you? This is the quote of the year for me. It's an old one, but I only heard it a couple months ago. Our boy G.K. Chesterton. It is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. One more time because that was so good. It is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saints who contradict it most. Do you get that? Like who, who are those who convert generations? Not the relevant, not the knowledgeable, not even the zealous, but those who contradict that very generation the most. We are called to be walking contradictions to the way of the world. Let me give you an example. If you followed along with the Asbury outpouring that happened a few months ago in Kentucky, you'll know that this movement of God, which I really do believe was a genuine work of the Spirit, was anything but hype, performance, manufacturing, or conjuring anything up. There's no advertising, there was no high production value, no charismatic speakers, 
They rejected Fox News from coming, certain high-profile speakers from speaking, and those that they did allow to like take the stage to speak, you literally had to go into this consecration room, they called it, to confess your sin, to get right with God, to make sure that like anything that was like impure in your heart was confessed before you took the stage. This was a movement led by Gen Z for Gen Z. And you know what it was characterized by? Humility, peace, gentleness, belonging, in the midst of a generation that is sick of showmanship and has been marked by anxiety and loneliness. The charism of this outpouring contradicted the ethos of that very generation and the culture at large. Now my question is, what if we were a community of honesty and integrity that contradicted a culture marked by deception and distrust? That's a community that God can use in big ways. And there's an example of a community in the first century that, that stood out from culture like this. When, when, when the world takes notice of character, that's saying something. First century historian Josephus, he says this to the community of the Essenes. They were the community that were largely responsible for uh, copying the books of the Old Testament into scrolls in, at the Dead Sea. He says this, any word of theirs has more force than an oath, swearing they avoid, regarding it as worse than perjury. For they say that one who is not believed without an appeal to God stands condemned already. So what if Town Center was known as a community whose words carried more weight than an oath because we lived with such integrity? This is what the people of God look like. This is what beatitude people look like. This is what kingdom people look like. This is what the world is missing and what the world needs. People of integrity and honesty who stand in contrast to the world. But if you want to be that kind of person, you got to get honest with yourself, with God, and with others. This doesn't just happen. How do we become those people? Well, it begins with confession. And confession's a scary thing, but God has given us this gift of confession to disarm the power of deception and to set us back on a path toward integrity. God invites us to confess the ways we've deceived ourselves, the ways we've lied to God and to others. Remember, we're not people of darkness. We're people of the light, called to let our light shine before others right there in the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul exhorts the Ephesians. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Don't play by the enemy's playbook. Dishonesty, deceit. Man, if the enemy can get us to do his dirty work, he's laughing. So maybe in this moment, right now, like not later today after lunch, but like right now, as we're here in this room, maybe you need to turn to your spouse and bring some hidden sin into the light that you've been covering up. Maybe you need to phone someone and confess that you haven't kept your word to them. 
Maybe you need to confess to God that you've been living in self-deception. You know it, and you're tired of living in a cycle of shame, sin, and feeling fake. Now let me just remind you of the Father's default emotion toward you if you're in Christ. It's one of mercy. It's one of mercy, not condemnation. Right? There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And 1 John 1, 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. So when you confess, you're met with love, grace, and forgiveness. Confession and repentance are the pathway toward the peace of a clear conscience and toward reconciliation with God and with others. So if you've been keeping something from someone, do not buy the lie that you shouldn't confess your sin to that person because it'll hurt them. It hurts them more by keeping it hidden in the darkness. And we're really just trying to protect our own ego. It's the lying that hurts the person more. And do not buy the lie that confessing less is a sign of spiritual maturity. I don't know how we got to thinking this way, but a sign of greater spiritual maturity is confessing more often, that we're bringing things continually into the light and that the Spirit is convicting us of that which is offside, that which isn't pure in heart. So bring it into the light where there's fellowship with God and with others. Expose the unfruitful works of darkness, for we are children of the light, saved by the one who is himself truth and keeps all of his promises. I'm going to pray. I'll invite the band up at this time. Well, Lord, we confess that our hearts are deceitful. Um, our hearts are sick. And often we do not seek to please you. Father, we know that we can be self-deceived. God, there's temptation to deceive others and to run from you. And so, Father, I just pray that in this moment, you would bring conviction. You would just shine your light on those areas where maybe we've been holding back from telling someone the truth. Lord, if there's, if there's any hidden sin in our hearts, God, we pray that you would just shine a light on that. And by your mercy, you would help us expose that, bring it into the light, Lord, that we might be reconciled, Lord, mm -hmm. in proper relationship with you and with others. And God, I pray that we would not stand in condemnation, Lord, feeling like you're, you're disappointed in us or you're angry with us. But God, I pray that it would be by your mercy and your incredible love that you have for us um, that we would come to repentance, Lord. Mm -hmm. Your kindness leads us to repentance. And so Jesus, I pray that we would become, we would become a community marked by honesty and integrity in a culture that is marked by deception and lies. Lord, we pray that we would be people whose words can be trusted God, we don't want to present one image and then be different behind closed doors. We pray that we, pray that we wouldn't be two-faced, Lord, but that as we look full in your wonderful face, mm -hmm. Lord, that the temptation to please others, the temptation to look good would fade. Mm -hmm. And so, Father, I pray that in this moment you would search us, Lord, by your grace, 
Show us if there's any unconfessed sin. Show us if there's any deceit in our hearts. And Lord, would you prompt us to respond? We thank you, Jesus, for your grace, for your love and kindness. We thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we thank you, Jesus, that you keep all of your promises and that you can be trusted. And so, Lord, we say that we are yours. We want to be marked by honesty Mm -hmm. and integrity. So, Lord, would you do a work in our hearts? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.